you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 6. There's an outline right out there, right at the center doors at the ministry counter. This is the last message in this series, United, and that's what it's all about. But we're trying to come to better understanding of racial reconciliation and what our role as a church is. Uh, we had two different passages of Scripture we used two weeks before. Today we're going to use a third passage. And I want to warn you a little bit. I have a lot to say, and I'm going to be kind of talking kind of fast as I usually do. I'm going to be rambling, and because I have a lot of different topics, maybe seem like I'm jumping one from the other, and you're probably thinking, what else is new, Pastor? Don't you do that every week, right? Because I usually kind of ramble on up here and talk fast and all those kind of things. But please bear with me this morning. I'm praying that God will use it some way to impact our lives because this is a very, very touchy issue today. Racial reconciliation is what we're talking about here. It was in 1963 when Dr. Martin Luther King made that famous statement that at 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is the most segregated time of the week in our culture. And many people have repeated that over and over. Also, Dr. Martin Luther King also wrote in his letters from a Birmingham jail that he wrote about a choice all of us need to make, that the choice is simply that we would choose to either be the thermometer or a thermostat. And he said that if we can choose to be a thermometer, which basically registers or records the environment around them, or we can choose to be a thermostat that transforms the environment around us. And all of us have to make a choice. Every church has to make a choice. And at Crossroads, we want God to make us a thermostat and allow the Holy Spirit to set the, the temperature so we might be used in a mighty way to transform the environment around us. But what are we going to do as individuals? What are we going to do? If you have your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, put your thumb in Acts chapter 6 because I want to take you to two other passages as an introduction at uh, Acts chapter 6. And the first one is Galatians chapter 3, if you could find that, or you could just sit there and just uh, listen as I read it. Galatians chapter 3 is after uh, 1st and 2nd Corinthians in the New Testament. So you've got to go to the right of your Bibles there a little bit. And Paul is writing to the church of Galatia, and he says this, a very powerful verse in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. He says this. You have it? See some of you thumbing through your Bibles. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And that's really the first message that I, I spoke about. Uh, I, I used the passage of Ephesians 2 when I shared that message, but where God has brought two distinct bodies together, Jew and Gentile, and he's brought them together to make one new man, the church, and it's brought together through the body of Jesus Christ, through the, through the cross of Jesus Christ. And through the Holy Spirit, we together come as one new man, the church, and we have access together to the throne of God through the cross of Jesus, Right? We are so blessed. We are so blessed to know Jesus. But we live in a fallen world. Because we live in a fallen world, we have sin. And because we have sin, we have division. We have misunderstandings. And we hurt each other as individuals and as groups. And yet God is calling us back to the ideal, to his plan, is what he says. That we are one new man. He wants us to understand we are one new man. And we are together. We're one new man in the church of Jesus Christ. That's what he says. That's the ideal. That's God's plan for humanity. That's God's plan for this world. For us to understand that he said, I brought you together. You might be one new man in Jesus Christ. The next passage I want you to look at is Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 through 11. The last book of the Bible, Revelation 7. Now, I, and I believe the context for this chapter is during the tribulation time period here on this earth. But the scene of Revelation 7 is in heaven. 
And in heaven, you have people gathered around the throne of, of God, including people who are martyred during their tribulation time, these saints. And their souls are in heaven, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But let's read Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. It says here, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Before we move on, I want to talk about this. I've, over the years, I've had a lot of questions asked that what this verse speaks about, that people would say, uh, the question is, when a person dies, will they have a body in heaven before the last resurrection? Will they have a body in heaven? And this verse would indicate, yes, what this verse is talking about here, what he says here. In other words, when a person dies, we understand the Bible to say that they're absent from the body and present with the Lord, right? That's what we believe that they're in heaven with the Lord, their soul is. Their body is still here on this earth, right? It's still on this earth, either uh, buried in the ground or, or cremated or scattered at sea or whatever. But one day, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that body will be resurrected and restored, and reunited with that soul in heaven. But what happens until that day? What happens? This passage answers the question, because those martyred tribulation saints are in the presence of God with white robes they're wearing, which presupposes a body, right? If you have a white robe on, you got to have a body to wear it, right? So it presupposes a body there, and the white robes are indicating the righteousness of Jesus. And I believe until that day that people who have died and who have gone to heaven will have an intermediate body, will have a temporal body, recognizable body, waiting for the resurrection, the resurrection of their bodies. Because one day, God is going to restore this old body back to our souls one day with a glorified body. But he's going to use this body. But until that time, if we die and go to heaven, he's going to give us a temporal body that we will have. And this passage kind of speaks to that. But let's go on and let's see what's happening around the throne of God in heaven. In verse 10 and 11, he says, And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. This is what heaven's going to be like, is what the Bible is sharing. Giving you and I a glimpse of heaven, that people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation are gathered there together to worship God around the throne of God. And the question I ask is this. If that's what heaven is going to be like then, why not now? Why can't we have that now? Why can't we worship that way now? Why do we have to have division? Why do we have to have misunderstandings? Why do we have to have that? People from every tongue and nation and tribe should be able to meet together and gather together to worship. Just like heaven, we should be doing that now. The book of Acts has a lot of illustrations about the how, uh, how the Holy Spirit uh, broke down walls and barriers. And in the life of Jesus, we see that too. And I, I want to give you a couple examples. Uh, the first uh, seven or eight centuries before Jesus came to the earth, the prophecy came that Isaiah, and Isaiah 9 said, that a light will shine in the darkness. In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, a great light will shine. And it was talking about the Galilee of the Gentiles, that area there. And for you were reading this, you were the first century Jew, a Judean, and you have to be saying, are, are, are you kidding me? From that land, something's going to come? That's on the other side of the tracks. We don't even go over that side. We don't like those people. We don't associate with those people. We don't want anything to do with those people. If you were living in Jerusalem, you didn't have anything to do with those people because they were on the wrong side. We don't associate with them. We look down on those people. We don't like those people. 
But that's where God chose to have Jesus grow up, in a little town in Nazareth, a long way from the busy lifestyle and temple worship in Jerusalem. In the Galilee of the Gentiles is what the Bible tells us. In Jesus' life here on earth, there was division between the Samaritans and the Judeans. That the Jews traveling from uh, Jerusalem to go up to Galilee wouldn't even go through Samaria. They'd go around it. Or if they came down from Galilee down to Jerusalem, they would go around it to get down there. They wouldn't even go through Samaria, but not Jesus. We know in John chapter 4 that Jesus went right through Samaria and met a woman at the well that needed Jesus, right? That's what he did. That's who Jesus was. And when Jesus left this earth to go to heaven, the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. At Acts chapter 2, the church began, and the Holy Spirit was going to take the gospel through the apostles in a way that was going to knock down these barriers and knock down these walls, these racial and ethnic walls between people, and that's what he was going to do. We see it happening initially between the Galileans and the Judeans, and then we see it happening between the Samaritans and the Judeans, and then the Jews and the Gentiles. And then finally, in Acts chapter 6, God's going to break down one more wall, the Holy Spirit is. In this passage, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, we're going to learn unity begins with you, begins with us as individuals, has to start with us. And I want to read this passage, and we're going to find three steps toward unity when we're done here. So let's read verses, Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. It says, In those days, when a number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer in the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This passage, I want to give you three steps toward unity. And the first step, you have to, you have to empathize for unity. You have to empathize for unity. We see there's a problem with this passage of talking about. The problem came when things were going great. That's usually when problems come. Everything's going fine and a problem came. And the problem was people are increasing in number, the Bible says. Things were going great. People are increasing in number. But you had two groups of people who were divided. And those were two groups of widows. Both groups needed help and support from the church. Now, there was a first group was the Hebraic Jews. These were the Hebrew women. They were the ones who lived in Jerusalem. They, they were born in Jerusalem. They never moved out of Jerusalem. And they spoke the Aramaic language. Then the second group were the Grecian Jews, or what some call them the Hellenistic Jewish widows. They came from the Greek culture. They came from the Greek land, the Roman Empire, and they spoke the Greek language. They came probably because their husbands had died. And it, and it is to believe that many would come to Jerusalem to be cared for to die and be buried there. That was their destination. And the only, they were both Jewish groups, and the only difference between those groups was their language. Aramaic for the Hebrew, and the Greek language for the Grecians. The only other difference was their location is where they grew up. The, the one, in, one was Jerusalem, and the other one was the countryside of the Roman Empire. But now living together in Jerusalem is what they're living there. 
And with the distribution of the food on a daily basis for these two groups, we're not told all the details. We don't know exactly what happened. We're not telling there was any direct intent somebody was trying to be mischievous or there was somebody trying to show favoritism. We're not showed none of that. But it was stated that, the, uh, that some were, felt like the Grecian women were neglected. And so the Grecian Jews said, wait a minute, you're neglecting our women. You have to stop this. You have to stop doing this. It could be that the Hebraic Jewish women just lived in closer proximity to distribution center, and somehow they got in line first. And the Grecian women, by the time they got there, there was no food, but we don't know. But the Greek leaders, the, the Jews who spoke Greek, they said, this isn't right. And so they brought a complaint to the apostles. They were complaining. And imagine if you were one of the apostles, how would you respond to this? Things are going great. And maybe you say to them, hey, Things are going so well. We're making disciples. People are coming to Jesus. This is not our problem. This is not our problem. You guys work it out. But this is not our problem. We don't want to take our eyes off our focus of making disciples for Jesus Christ because that's what we're called to do, to preach the word and prayer and make disciples. But the apostles didn't do that. They emphasized what the problem. They put an action plan together is what they did. They put a plan together that would be carried out. Do you remember in the time in the life of Jesus, John the Baptist's forerunner was in prison, and uh, John was wondering, is Jesus really the Messiah? So he sends one of his disciples to Jesus and asks Jesus, are you really the Messiah, the one where look for the promise to come? And Jesus' answer was more of a question. I don't know if you remember that. He said, look at what I'm doing. Am I doing the things that a Messiah would do, like healing the sick and proclaiming the year of the Lord and setting the prisoners free and fulfillment of Isaiah 61? And the answer to the rhetorical question is obvious is yes. You are doing what only a Messiah could do. Yes, you are the Messiah. So the question should be asked of the church today, the same thing. It says, are you the church of Jesus Christ? We can answer that with a question. Are we doing what God has called us to do? What has God called us to do as a church? Our foremost responsibility, Jesus says, our primary responsibility as a church, he gives us in Matthew 28, to go and make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's our primary responsibility, that we're to make disciples of Jesus Christ. What about the people? What about the needs of the people? What about some of the people who need food? What about those people? What are we supposed to do with them? That's the challenge of the church. See, there are two men, organizational leaders, 40 years ago, they, they said the real, this is the reason the church is the hardest organization in the world to manage because it has, a, it has to accomplish two irreconcilable goals at the same time. They have to make disciples that they're ministered to the needs of the people. And it's hard to accomplish both of those, do those well. Not too many churches do those well. There were some churches that started back in the 1920s and they were a little bit more liberal in their theology, and they saw the needs of the people. They saw those, what we call those justice issues. And they said that we have to meet those needs because we're the church, so we have to meet those needs. And, and so they met those needs. What they did, they dug wells. They taught people how to farm. They taught people how to plant their crops. They taught them how to maintain the fields so erosion wouldn't take place. But in the process of doing that, they didn't share the gospel of Jesus Christ. They didn't share Jesus at all. So in response to that, there were other churches that looked at what they were doing and said, that's wrong, what they're doing. We've got to present the gospel. So they presented the gospel of Jesus and shared Jesus, but they were tone deaf to the hunger needs of the people. They didn't listen. So what is right? What is right for the church to do? Is it to present the gospel, to share Jesus, 
or is it to give food to the starving or give water to the thirsty? Which one do you think is more important? Anybody have an answer? That's a tough question, isn't it? We have to take the gospel, what God has called us to do. We have to share Jesus. We have to make disciples. But we also have to do what God has called us to do, is meet the needs of the people, to help the needy. Without sacrificing, making disciples, we have to do both. We have to make disciples, and we also have to meet the needs of the people. And that's what the apostles did here. That's what they were saying. Say, we have to preach the word of God. We have to pray. But we also, he says, we have to solve this problem that we have in front of us. We can't ignore the problem. So he says, we have to have empathy. We have to see and meet the needs of the people. There was a theme that goes throughout the Old Testament. All through the Old Testament, yeah, people talked about the poor and God talked about justice. And the word justice, God uses 200 times in the Old Testament. And the challenge is to meet those justice issues. That's what God wants to do. We gotta meet the justice issues without sidestepping or sacrificing to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've got to continue to go and make disciples and share Jesus. That's the challenge as a church that we have. Every church has, every true church has that challenge. And I have confidence that God is going to move in our hearts and minds and help us to take that step up that we might do both of those well. That we might be able to make disciples of Jesus Christ while meeting the needs of the people at the same time. But it's going to take all of us. Not one person could do it, not just the elders, but it's going to take all of us. And that brings us to our second step toward unity. The second step is you have to serve for unity. You have to serve. The Bible says they chose seven men. They had a plan. And the apostle said, the Greek disciples said there's a problem. And they said, we don't just want you to come and complain about the problem, but we want you to help us solve the problem. And that's the key. Many times people want to complain to the the elders or or whatever leadership they, they have at the church, the elders, and say, man, there's a problem. But they want to be part of the, the solving of the problem. They don't want to be a part of the solution. And that's what the apostles were saying. You've brought this problem. We want you to help us solve it. Will you help us solve the problem is what they said. So the apostles didn't come up with the details of the plan. They came up with the big plan, but they left the details to the other people. It says, help us solve this problem because we see there's a problem. We empathize with the problem. We agree there's a problem. So they put this on the Greek leaders, and they said, you choose seven men who are qualified. And they chose seven men who are qualified, and they had this plan. The, elder, the, the apostles prayed over them, and everyone was happy with the plan. So the apostles could do what God has called them to do, to preach the word and pray and make disciples. And verse 7 goes on to say this. They continue to grow and multiply. Now, this could have been a deal breaker. This could have stopped all the momentum. This could have changed how the book of Acts rolled out, right? But because the apostles, they solved the problem, there was a problem there in front of them. We're, we're fixated on the target. We can't stop making disciples. We got to continue doing this. We don't want to take our eye off the ball. We got to continue this. But they put together a plan, and there was unity, and accomplished the plan that God had for the church. They had to serve together. So they didn't ignore the problem. They said, we're going to continue preaching the word and praying and making disciples, but we're going to have some of you rise up to take care and meet the needs of the people. They have to serve together for unity, and that's what it takes in a church. We all have to serve together for unity. We have to come and accomplish what God has us to do, the bigger goal, preaching the word and making sure we're praying for people, make sure we're making disciples, but also minister to the needs of the people, right? We have to minister to the needs of the people. We have to do both. That's what God has called us to do. The third step toward unity is you have to reconcile for unity. You have to reconcile. 
We who have been reconciled, we have been called to reconcile. We have been reconciled through Jesus. Now we've been called to reconcile other people to Jesus. And that's the big challenge for the church. That's the big challenge for us. Because we in ourselves are not going to be able to reconcile two warring or battling uh, parties together, two groups together, are we? But we can introduce them or bring them to the one who can. We, that's what we're supposed to do. And that's what it's called in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the ministry of reconciliation. That's what God has for the church and has for you and I, that we bring people together. And that's a challenge that God has for the church, that we bring people together so they might have the opportunity to be reconciled through the person of Jesus Christ. First, to God the Father, because Jesus at the cross broke down that barrier between us and God the Father, that people can be reconciled to God the Father through Jesus. So we know we're bringing people together and do the ministry of reconciliation, bring them together, introduce them to Jesus, because he's the only one that can unite them with God the Father and, and reconcile them. But also he broke down the walls of hostility, the Bible says, so he can reconcile with other people. And that's what Jesus came to do, the ministry of reconciliation, to bring people together. That's what the church is supposed to do. Because politicians aren't going to solve the problems of division in a the world. They're not going to be able to do this. Governmental leaders can't do this. All they can do is make laws. And laws will never, ever, ever change people's hearts. It doesn't change people's hearts. It's just, okay, i got to do this now. Only one that can change people's hearts is Jesus. He changes people's hearts. We introduce people to Jesus. That's what makes the difference. That's what God's plan was. But we have to build those relationships with people. We have to break down those stereotypes. We have to love each other the way God intended us to love. Doesn't matter their race, their tribe, their language, any of that. God's plan all along was to unite the world and unite people through Jesus Christ. Unite us with God, the Father, through Jesus. But unite all of us under this one umbrella, this one new man, the church. That was God's plan. But the world doesn't know it. They don't understand God's plan. They've been blinded by the enemy, and they're oblivious to what God has given a, a perfect plan. He says, I've taken care of this problem of division. My son came and satisfied that, to bring people together before God and to each other. And it's all to happen through Jesus. Understand that? Amen? That ends our series. That's, that's this series, the this series, the, the message that I want to get across. But it's almost the beginning of a discussion that we have to have with ourselves, that each one has to have, as we learn and understand the ro role that God would have us to play. Because we all have to answer the call. Will I be a thermometer or will I be a thermostat? Which one am I going to choose to be? We all have to answer the call. What I'm really asking is every one of us would examine inside of our hearts and have the Holy Spirit and spend some time and say, God, would you examine my heart through the Holy Spirit and reveal, is there any racial tension in my life? Is there any prejudices in my life? Is there anything ethnic tension in my life? And if there is, we wouldn't just throw it according, oh, I'm all right, nothing's there, because that's what many people say, oh, there's nothing there. But we'd really examine our hearts and our lives and our minds and say, God, is there anything there? And if there is, that we confess it. But we really spend some time with God and ourselves and really ask that question, God, is there anything there in my life? And if there is, confess it. Release it to God and get rid of it, right? Get rid of it once for all. God, get it out of here. There's no place in the church for any of those things. There's no place as a follower of Jesus Christ for any of that to have in our lives. We need to be serious and honest with ourselves and not just write it off and say there's not, but really examine our hearts. Because all of us come in here with our own identities. 
with our subordinate identities, don't we? We come with those, we have those subordinate identities. I come with mine, that I'm a male, I'm a pastor, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a grandfather. I have my German, uh, kind of Irish, English, Dutch background. I'm a mixture. I'm all kinds of things. And, and, and I'm kind of approaching middle age, wouldn't you say? Kind of laughing. Maybe. I like to look at myself as approaching middle age. But those are my subordinate identities that, we, that I have. And all of us have them. We all come with their subordinate identities. This is who I am. But there's a superordinate identity that we all have if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior. That surpasses them all. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are a follower of Jesus that makes all the difference in the world. And that's what unites us. We share that in common. That's what brings us together, and that's what's supposed to bring us together. That superordinate identity as followers of Jesus Christ makes all those subordinate identities less important. They're not as important. All those identities, they come, well, I'm part of this group, and I'm part of that group, and I'm part of this. But this identity of being a follower of Jesus is superior to all of them. It must govern all of them how I act and respond to all people. And all these other identities, they have to stay way down here because it makes us, to understand that I'm a follower of Jesus, that's who we are. It makes us one in Christ. And we are one new man. We are the church. And that's how, what we have to live out. Not these subordinate identities. They're lesser importance. We have to live out who we are in Jesus. Amen? That's what's important in our lives. Who I am in Christ. So I'm going to love as Jesus did. I'm here to reconcile people to Christ. I'm here to love them and reach out to them with the love of Jesus, all who I come in contact with, just as Jesus did. That's what he's called us. That's God's plan for the world. When people talk about the vision, God has a solution, and it's always Jesus. Do you know that? Reconciled to God the Father through Jesus and breaking down the walls between each other, we have the common denominator is Jesus. We come together on that big umbrella of Jesus. One new man, the church. That's why he created the church. I want to bring them all together as a family. Break down all barriers, ethnic barriers, racial barriers, every barrier between the groups, and unite them together in Jesus Christ. And if you were here today and you don't know Jesus, that's your first step to be united with God. First step is coming to understand that you're a sinner and you're separated from God, but Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And today, put your faith and trust in Jesus for forgiveness of sins. That's where you start. You've got to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. So please do that today. See, my heart hurts because of division. I hate division. I hate it. I hate, I hate it. We spend a lot of time in our church praying for marriages and praying for relationships, breaking down walls between people. Let's all choose to be a thermostat that God wants it to be, that we would transform the environment around us for the glory of God. That's what he's called us. Let's all practice to bring people to Jesus. Let's practice the ministry of reconciliation because that's what God has called us, that be reconciling people to Jesus. We can't change people's hearts, but we can introduce them to the one who can, right? And that's what the church's job is. That's what our job as an individual is to bring people to the one who can change them, bring people to the one who can unite them to God and to each, each other. And the only person that can, there's only one. There's not two, there's only one. It's a person, a name of Jesus Christ. That's why he came. And that's why we share that message. And that's why the church has to stand up today and say, wait, the, the government can't do this for you. These other groups, the United Nations and all these other groups, they can't do it for you. There's only one that can do it. It's the church. And it's a person of Jesus Christ. That's what God has called the church to do, is unite the world together to Jesus. 
with Jesus. He's the one that unites us all. Amen? So let's practice the ministry of reconciliation. That's what this is all about, to unite us together. And for us to really understand, we have a wonderful message. The message that the world needs to hear, that they don't understand that God has a perfect plan for all the struggles, all the misunderstandings, all the division in the world. And it's his son, Jesus, his son, Jesus. If we all come and united under that umbrella and that one new man, the church, God says, we've come under him, make all the difference in the world. Let's pray. Lord, you come and we praise you. We praise you, God, because you open up our eyes to your son, Jesus. And we understand it. For us who know Jesus, it's easy for us to see. It's, just, it's a plain as day. It's clear. It's crystal clear. We see it. We understand it. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. We sit here and we worship him. We know that he died on the cross for him. And without him, there is no hope. But because of Jesus, there's hope and eternity with him. Forgiveness of sins and access to God the Father and all the blessings that come. But Lord, there's so many in the world that don't know this. There's so many in the world, their minds are darkened toward Jesus because the, the enemy, Satan, has blinded their eyes. So Lord, we ask that you would use this in a powerful and mighty way to help us with that message of reconciliation that we might bring people that they might hear and know Jesus. Lord, as you use this in powerful ways, place people on our hearts and minds, Lord, that uh, you want us to speak to, give us opportunities. But Lord, we pray that you would tender their hearts. For no one can come to you without you drawing them. No one can come to you without you, Lord. You're the one that saves people, not us. We're just required to share the message of Jesus, to bring people to you. But you're the one that has to change lives. You're the one that unites. It's all through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, we come as your servants today. And Lord, I pray if someone doesn't know Jesus Christ their Savior, Lord, convict them of their sin. Convict them that Jesus loves them and died for them. They might trust him as Savior. I pray for their soul. All of us who know Jesus, Lord, we have the answer that the world so desperately needs. And sometimes, Lord, we thought, oh, it's just Jesus. He is. He is the answer. The answer they need is to be reconciled to their God. And it's only one way. It's through your son, Jesus. The answer they, they need to be reconciled to each other. And there's only way, one way. is through the reconciliation of Jesus. That, Lord, we have the answer for everyone. And Jesus is the answer. So help us, Lord, to take this message and be bold with it. To share it with others because they desperately need it. Without Jesus, there is no hope. Hope for eternity or hope in this world without Jesus. And so, Lord, help us to be bold with that and, and share the truth of who he is and not shy away. Let's not let, help us, Lord, not to try to assume that we know how someone's going to respond. But let's leave that to you. Let's do our job as sharing it openly and honestly of who Jesus is and what he means to us. Lord, we praise you and thank you. Lord, we ask for unity to be in our church. We thank you for the unity we have. We pray, Lord, that uh, uh, no divisions or anything come in our church, that we be open and accepting to all people, no matter who they are, love, with the love of Jesus. We want all people to come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Lord, not only do we want to practice that in our church, we want to practice that in our own lives, in our own homes the places where we go to work and everywhere we go, Lord, let us be those kind of people that accepting of all people and looking for opportunities that ministry of reconciliation of sharing Jesus Christ. Lord, we praise you and we thank you so much, Lord. So right now, Lord, I pray for each one of us. If there's something in our hearts and minds that we need to confess, whether it's racial, 
tension, ethnic tension, prejudices, or any other sin that's in our lives that we might confess it, that we might surrender it to you this morning so we can live the life you called us to live, that we might glorify you with our hearts and our minds, that we might be united with you, Lord, as we go forth with this ministry of reconciliation that we might share and bring other people to Jesus. Lord, we love you and praise you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.